0: Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it, is, it is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to Christ, to him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 to 18. So do so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is the word of God.
1: Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you that you speak. And as we open these psalms over the coming day uh, weeks, uh, we pray uh, that you will grow our vocabulary to know how to pray to you, that you help us to know how to bring forth our circumstances, our feelings, all that we are before you. We pray that you would bless us as we read this word, and most of all, that you would help us to grow in our trust of your Son, Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his beautiful name, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. A king sits on their throne. Usurpers are rising through the ranks. Political assassinations are plotted. Family bloodlines are at war with each other. Friendships are forged in secret. Political machinations grind behind the scenes. Adultery, murder, incest. Brother murders brother. Spies and moles are dispatched. The king is usurped by his son, and that king ends up on the run plotting his vengeance. Sounds like the plot lines of the very popular Game of Thrones TV series, but I am not referring to Game of Thrones. I am, in fact, summarizing the contents of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, not only are, that, is, are those books of the Bible full of multiple storylines, suspense, intrigue, drama, but they also form the backdrop to our psalm today, specifically the events of 2 Samuel chapters 15 through to 17. Now you can see that subscript in Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So if you didn't know before, the titles that you find in your Bible, usually in bold, they're actually put in there by Bible editors, but subscripts like that david uh, a psalm of david when he fled from absalom are actually part of the scriptures not all the psalms have these subscripts so you know not always i'll be looking for the immediate context to which these psalms apply but today's one does and it helps inform us as we read it so you can see psalm 3 written by david the king of israel set within the context of fleeing from his son absalom see david had previously started his kingship really really well Even receiving massive promises, massive blessings from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. As you read 2 Samuel 7, you must wonder aloud what kind of man deserves those promises. But then, after that, David begins to lose the plot. In 2 Samuel 11, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And from that sin, he starts on this slippery slope slide down for the rest of the book. By 2 Samuel 15, his beloved son Absalom has forced a coup, causing David to flee with a small group of loyal soldiers. His own people, his own nation has turned against him. He runs off to the hills. He is in hiding. And so we open this psalm. As we open this psalm, we can see David is not in a happy place. He complains. And notice who he complains to. First words of verse 1. O Lord, Lord capitalized, because that's God's personal name, Yahweh. David is not crying out to a distant, all-powerful being. He's crying out to the God who knows him personally, who knows David and who David knows personally. David's complaint, uh, as you can see in verses 1 and 2, is dominated by the words many. Three times he speaks of the many who are rising up against him. Uh, and though these lines are short, they're not vague words of just simple disappointment with life. Right? David's not some you know, millennial going, woe is me, right? my avocado on toast now costs $18. <laughs> right? Many foes, many rising up, many saying, uh, these are words of adrenaline. David is in fight or flight response mode. And fly he did. As you read through 2 Samuel, you'll find a man who is bone-weary from running and the piercing stabs of betrayal. The many are voicing what he must already be feeling inside. Have a look at verse 2, end of verse 2. There is no salvation for him in God. Extraordinary words to say of David. Don't you know who he is? You see, at the end of Psalm 2, David... Sounds like that son in Psalm 2, spoken, uh, that previous Psalm just before this. David is the Messiah King who God has put in place to rule over the other nations. He is God's chosen king, and yet here in the very next Psalm, God's chosen king is on the run, surrounded by enemies and looking as though his God has deserted him. This opening, the opening verses give us a picture of a man who, in his heart and mind, in his emotions and, men, and, uh, and mentally, he, he's exhausted. And not only is he internally exhausted, but he's externally overwhelmed with fear. Have you ever felt this overwhelmed before? I, I'm guessing here that none of you woke up this morning in the same situation as David. But that sense of being overwhelmed by your circumstances, whether you have experienced it or whether you will experience it, it's exhausting. And when that happens, your natural fight or flight instincts kick into gear. So are you a fighter or a fleer? On May 12, 2008, a magnitude 8.0 earthquake hit Sichuan province of China more than 85,000 people died. 375,000 people were injured, and the total damage was estimated to be 150 billion US dollars. Now, in the aftermath of the earthquake, official newspapers were directed to report uplifting stories. But one story began making the rounds on the internet. It was the story of school teacher Fan Meijong. When the earthquake struck, Rather than see the orderly evacuation of his classroom and students, he shouted, Stay calm! It's an earthquake! And then he ran for it. (laughs) He later reported, I ran towards the stairs so fast that I stumbled and fell as I went. And when I reached the centre of the football pitch, I found that I was the first to escape, and none of my pupils were behind me. Fortunately, all his students survived. So faced with overwhelming circumstances, Fan Meijong ran away. And so we've got to ask, what is David going to do? Faced with overwhelming circumstances, he's already on the run. Would he just run and keep running and hide and disappear forever? If you read through 1 Samuel, you'll learn that he's an expert at living in caves. As we move on in the psalm, though, we notice this sudden change of tone and mood. As with many of the psalms, the opening scene gives way to a different atmosphere. So have a look at verses 3 and 4. We see that though, David, uh, that though David's situation has not changed, David has. The overwhelming fears that are before his eyes, being on the run, hiding in the hills and the caves. But in verses 3 and 4, he lifts his eyes from what he can see before him. And he looks to the unseen he looks to yahweh and he sees yahweh as his shield notice that yahweh doesn't provide a shield yahweh is the shield surrounded by his enemies david sees god himself protecting and shielding david yahweh also lifts his head in verse 3. in ancient times kings would often put their feet On the necks of their vanquished enemies. Not only as a demonstration of their victory, but also as an act of shame upon the loser. So, for God to lift David's head up in verse 3 is to lift him from the shame of being on the run, of having lost his throne. God is taking away his shame. And then in verse 4, David cries aloud to God in persistent prayer to his personal God. He receives an answer. And notice in verse four that God answers from His holy hill. Right? You flip back in your Bible to chapter uh, Psalm two, not chapter two. Psalm two, verse six, where God has set up His Messiah King. Right? Dave, the holy hill is where God sets up His Messiah King. Now David is no longer on his throne, but God still is. And that gave David confidence. His circumstances had not changed, but his perspective had. He remembered that, God, his, that it was his God, Yahweh, who alone could protect him and save him. And it was a confidence rooted in God's promises and word. David was no longer on the holy hill, but in Psalm 2, God was clear that the hill was his. Now, these two lines challenge us. David declared that it was only God who could save. But if we're honest... When life gets difficult, I think a number of us have already built in fail-safes. We might declare that Jesus is our saviour, but we're actually living for something else. It's what Tim Keller calls our functional saviours, right? The things that we really want, what, it, what is actually real to us. So Keller asks, if you ask for something that you don't get, you may be disappointed and then you go on and, hey, life's not over. Those are not your functional masters. But he says this. But when you pray and work for something and you don't get it, and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. Career goals, financial security, having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, having children, What is it that you want the most? What is it if you don't get it will lead you to explosive anger or deep despair? (coughs) See, none of those can shield you like God is a shield. None of those can lift your head when everything you want comes crashing down. None of those can answer you in your deepest need. And none of them can give you true rest. See, when God answered David's prayer, he gave David something he probably never thought to ask for, a good night's sleep. You see it there in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And then by verse 6, that fear, the fear that overwhelmed him is replaced by trust. It would be a mistake to think that David taking a nap was just what he did next after his prayer. Rather, we should actually see this as, God's, as part of God's answer to David's prayer. And again, probably something that David wasn't praying for, but our good God who gives good gifts knows the needs of his people. Now that last part in verse 5 uh, is so important to understanding why we sleep. Right, have a look again at the end of verse 5. For the Lord sustained me. Right, when we sleep we do so remembering that god does not right sleep is therefore beautiful evidence of resting in god's promises david allowed his body to rest because he knew that god who the god who sustains him never sleeps this is a small challenge again to the workaholic and maybe even to the procrastinator who stays up late frittering the hours away sometimes the godliest thing you can do is go to bed early When you lay down and wake up refreshed, you are preaching a small but ever so important sermon to yourself. God never sleeps. I am not God. God upholds me. I do not. The psalm takes a final turn now in verses 7 and 8, where we see David crying out to God one last time. Now the lines in verse 7, they parallel each other's other. So when David cries for God to arise and save him, the second half of that verse indicates how God will save him. And the language here is a bit full on. To strike someone on the cheek, to break their teeth, is generally seen as an act of shaming your opponent and disarming them. But they are full on words to be praying. If this psalm is a prayer, if this psalm is a song that people are singing, Would you feel comfortable praying or singing those words? you imagine for a moment that you're in a prayer meeting? One of the men in your group has a prayer request. Their boss at work has become incredibly abusive. And so you pray for gracious response. You pray that they would hold their tongue. You pray for wisdom to know how to move forward. And you're in one of those groups where people kind of gently say, Amen, after those kind of each sentence of those prayers. You know? So you're in one of those groups and they, they say, uh, there's a small chorus of these Amens going. And then one of the group members starts to pray, Dear Lord, you are sovereign over all things. Amen. You can save our dear brother from this situation. Amen. So break the teeth of the boss. <laughs> we'll talk later i'll counsel you brother not something many of us or any of us would ever pray and yet if you pray the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you're praying for judgment you're praying for jesus to return to usher in his kingdom And that means praying for judgment on those who have not bowed their knee to Him. If you're praying for the persecuted church and you're asking that God would release your brothers and sisters and free them from persecution, which is a good thing, are we prepared for the exact ways that God will do this? Not all the time, but sometimes. For the benefit of one, the downfall of another, must happen are we prepared to pray in these ways see here's the thing about david's prayer here david prays smash their teeth and then he leaves it in god's hands he doesn't pray and then gird up his loins for battle he prays to the sovereign god to do his thing because ultimately it is God who will save. You, you see that how David ends the prayer and this psalm in verse eight. You can see it there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who ultimately saves His people, and therefore He is the only one who can tr- we can trust and cry out to for help. And amazingly, before David finishes his prayer, he pray, uh, finishes the psalm. He prays a final blessing on God's people. Your blessing be on your people. Right there at the end in verse eight the same people who had rejected and allied themselves with absalom david seeks to bless now later generations who would read this psalm would be reminded again and again and again that not only in this psalm but also in their experience that when god saves his people he will and he does bless them as well god will do good to his people psalm 3 started with a cry to yahweh for help and it ends rejoicing knowing that Yahweh is the only one who can help. Now, the life and experience of David in this psalm parallels and points us forward to the life and experience of David's greatest great-great-great-great-grandson. David is God's anointed king, surrounded by enemies, overwhelmed, and yet faithfully trusting God. And what we see in David, we can see in Jesus. See, Jesus was also rejected by his family, who thought he was insane. The Gospel of Luke tells us that even his hometown rejected him. In the final hours, Jesus was surrounded on all sides by those who jeered and mocked him. And as he hung on the cross, voices in the crowd could be heard mocking him, yelling that if Jesus claimed to trust in God, then let God save him. Ha! There is no salvation in God for him. And mirroring David's blessing at the end of the psalm, Jesus loved even his enemies to die for them and to bless them. David trusted in his God. Jesus did so as well. And now all who trust in Jesus receive, receive that same salvation. This is a psalm of salvation. A, and salvation is received through that act of trust, that act of faith. But When you hear that word faith, it can feel like such a nebulous word. I wonderfully vague. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, faith can carry that idea of superstition as well. But Christians do not believe in superstition. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not entirely sure, this Psalm of David shows us three very distinctive things about saving faith. The first is that it shows us that saving faith is based on knowledge you must first acknowledge that salvation belongs exclusively to God. Second, it shows us that saving faith is based on agreement. You must agree that you need the shield provided by God alone. And that is your only source of comfort. And third, you must follow this knowledge and agreement with commitment. Faith is not just about the head or just about the heart. It's backed up by your life, and your willingness to follow God. This psalm shows us the three things that saving faith is based on, knowing God saves, agreeing you need to be saved, and committing to the one who saves you. And the Bible tells us that that salvation today is found in Jesus. So let me invite you to know this wonderful person called Jesus, to find out more about him, and to find in him everything you have ever hoped for. Then Let me invite everyone here to stay back and see those baptisms happening later today, to enter and squeeze into that big hall over there as we hear the testimonies of those who have found everything they have hoped for in Jesus. Now, if you are here today uh, and you are a Christian, then let me ask you, what threatens to overwhelm you today? Most of us didn't go to bed last night with the same levels of worry that David had. Being chased and surrounded by enemies, having lost a kingdom and loyalty of your people. But this psalm does have something to say to us when we feel a sense of being overwhelmed. See, for us in Christ, united to him by faith, the requests and experience of David in the psalm are ours as well we know that salvation belongs to god alone it's found in jesus we know that jesus is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him we know that in christ we are shielded jesus is our refuge our hiding place there is no safer place to be than to be united in christ we know that in christ we have and enjoy all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places Trusting Jesus means that we will never lack for anything from our good Father in heaven. We know that in Christ we can be confident that nothing can separate us from God's love for us. Those are the words that we read out before in Romans chapter 8. But listen to them again. Uh, Flip in your Bibles with me. Read them again with me. For these words are better than the ones that David could pray. Romans 8 verse 31. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, friends, is the language of confidence. David had confidence in his God. David heard an answer from God. If you're calling out to him, and if you are waiting for an answer, then it is right here. This is the sort of confidence that can give us rest, even sleep, when everything around us threatens to overwhelm us. And if all of that is true, then we do not lose heart. Turn in your Bibles now with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. In context, Paul is talking about the afflictions of ministry. But wow, these are such wonderful words as well that resonate so much with what David is saying. Uh, verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Whatever is threatening to overwhelm us, can we see from here that these afflictions are just momentary? That they are light, as in not heavy. What a remarkable perspective that is to take into moments of despair. That whatever this is, it is brief and it will pass by quickly. every earthly affliction everything that threatens us will ultimately be a footnote in eternity the fears that we have the enemies surrounding us they are visible and seen but paul says here they are transient like that smoke haze that is enveloping our city at some point it will disappear it will not last forever And all of these moments should be welcomed because they are preparing us for something even better, something beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, keep trusting the one who sustains and protects and saves his people. Keep trusting Jesus, the only one who we can trust and cry out to for help. For we will see that day when that help will arrive and it will be all worth it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, how many are the things in life that rise up against us and threaten us and hint that we have no hope. Lord Jesus, you are our shield about us You are our glory, you lift our heads. When we cry to you, you answer. So may we then rest in you, never afraid of anything outside of ourselves, never afraid of the condemnation for our sins. We call on you, Lord Jesus, to come. And bring your will on earth as it is in heaven. For salvation belongs to you. And your blessing on your people. Amen.